0: This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, produced by, and performed by me, Brad Lawrence, still in a tiny little room in Brooklyn during a pandemic, and lately also through a lot of, you know, people are out in the streets trying to make the world a better place and doing their part. And I hope that uh, all of you are staying safe out there and feeling like uh, the good fight is coming along. And I hope that... When you need a little respite and you need a little break from all of it, I hope that this podcast is providing you with that, that, you know, a little breather, a little piece of sanity as the fight goes on. Uh, But here we are with another episode of Maxine and the Planets Unknown. Welcome back, and thank you once again for tuning in. This week, episode 17, chapters 37, and thirty-eight. Chapter 37. Maxine had no eyes. Maxine was drifting sightless and content in the warm sun. Then suddenly everything was wet and close and moist and hot, and she had a feeling of rushing and clamoring from passage to passage, from vacuum to billow to stream of liquid that felt like it was molten and raging. There were violent vibrations everywhere and rumblings that seemed to get distant and then close, and then as she passed through the source with a wump and a swoosh, and then it was receding again, but never disappeared, and then she was through a membrane, and something passed over her and around her, clung to her and extruded her, and then she was in a world of ozone and buzz and, and sharp spikes that, that made her feel suddenly like electri- like electricity, and that and, 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 she was part of the flow and arc, and she could see. There was light, and the light, changed and shifted around and reflected off of things around her, creating shapes and shadows. Suddenly the world was full of movement and information and directions. There was an up and a down and a a placement in space. Where she had once been Eddie's in the never-ceasing stream of air of which she was a part, now she was an object in space. She was an angry object in space. She was a frightened object in space. She was two objects in space. She was seeing, and she was seeing from two sets of eyes, effectively staring at herself or at the other thing that had breathed her in. It was hard to sort that out at first. She could still feel the moist, warm, and cool soil. She could still feel the sun. She could still feel being adrift in the air. But now she was also these two strange things that were a riot of emotions and urges and movement. From the angrier perspective, she saw before her an intruder. It was a hunched and ambling creature. It had a broad, shaggy, brown back, from which extended two olive-scaled and plated forelimbs that were bowed in a stance that was both weary and challenging. Its thick head was bent low, a large, heavy plate dominant there as well, shadowing watchful eyes. Maxine's eyes, because Maxine was this creature too. She was the one that was afraid. And then she was the creature that was afraid, seeing from its eyes. And now she saw that Angry Maxine was a creature just like herself, with the shaggy brown fur and the hardened scales. But Angry Maxine was bigger and battle-scarred. They both had thick, jagged, and splintered claws at the end of their bulging and powerful limbs, but Angry Maxine seemed sharper, and the paws that wielded them seemed wider and tougher. But she also sensed that angry Maxine was older and more tired than she was. There were wounds that had never healed quite right, bones that complained from ancient fractures. Frightened Maxine was frightened, but what was she more afraid of? This snorting and posturing other her was definitely putting on an intimidating show, But frightened Maxine had no territory and no home, nowhere to forage or hunt, no ground to hold and take a mate and create offspring, no food and no reliable watering hole. Was the greater threat being thrashed, maybe fatally, by this big old brute, or being driven back to the nomadic nothing she'd just wandered out of, perhaps to starve to death? For angry Maxine's part, she had fought to get this territory and had put a lot of blood and age into defending it. She had a harem of females that she had no desire to give over to this young intruder, and, and dozens of pups she didn't relish having murdered to make way for this upstart seed. Frightened Maxine took a cautious step forward. Angry Maxine didn't wait for caution. She closed the distance so fast that frightened Maxine was shocked and terrified. She was the thing that attacked that sprung without hesitation, and she was a thing that had not seen the heavy, gnarled claw that was now buried in her shoulder until it was too late. Warm liquid ran from the wound that angry Maxine had just inflicted, and it was the first wound like this that frightened Maxine had ever taken. Frightened Maxine now had a dim sense of just how untested she was, Panic gripped her. She lashed out wildly. Most of her blows skidded off Angry Maxine's armor with no effect whatsoever. Angry Maxine was unrelenting. She'd been in many such battles, and she had taken her hits. She had her scars, she had her aches, but she remained strong. She remained on top. But the last challenger she had faced had done some damage that had not fully healed over yet. She had a loose scale on her midsection. She found herself cheating that part of herself away, instinctively trying to shield it. But as they tangled and scratched and huffed in one another's faces, the image of that loose scale and the part of angry Maxine that might be vulnerable beneath it flashed into the terror-muddled brain of frightened Maxine for one second of clarity, and with it, Frightened Maxine jabbed out, sank a claw beneath the scale in question, and ripped it free. Angry Maxine howled in sudden, jagged, burning pain. For a brief moment, Frightened Maxine felt triumphant. But then, there was a shift in Angry Maxine. Angry Maxine might have been content to just force Frightened Maxine away to have her flee from her territory, but the emotion that came in the wash of the pain that had flared through angry Maxine was not the terror or the loss of will that frightened Maxine might have wished for. It was instead pure killer rage. Before frightened Maxine could take advantage of the opening she had made for herself, before she could even register that things had turned from her seeming inevitable victory, angry Maxine had ripped her throat out. Frightened Maxine lay there on the ground, a pool of her own life spreading around her and soaking into the soil where quiet and blind Maxine awaited it. As all force and urgency seemed to drift away from her, she still tried to move and get back up, unable to comprehend that some line had been crossed and there was no going back. This was the end of frightened Maxine. It was the first time Maxine had ever ended, ever died, and it was... Hard. It was scary. And everything in her brain raged against it. And then, that need stopped. That desperation was gone. Right before there was nothing, there was peace. Things felt loose and dissipated, and they felt adrift. Dying was hard, and then... Just as suddenly, it was easy. It was scary, and then it was inevitable, like rest or like sleep. Frightened Maxine was no longer frightened as she looked up at the sky for one last time. Angry Maxine had retreated just as quickly as the killing blow had been dealt, anxious to lick her wound, And frightened, Maxine looked at the sky. There was not so much blue as it was white. And then she diffused into it and was gone. Maxine opened her eyes. She was sitting with her legs crossed. Mr. Humphreys was sitting across from her, a small, iridescent pool between them. He regarded her... Patiently, there were tears in her eyes. It wasn't scary at the end. At the end of the dying, sometimes the fear goes away. Mr. Humphreys seemed to take this in. Yes, yes, I suppose it does, sometimes. Maxine closed her eyes. Chapter 38 The creatures that Maxine had just inhabited, that Oxalus had inhabited in its infancy, the period before that having been nearly a billion years in its own right, had been dead for about 120 million of the planet's years. Obviously, she had felt the one die, the frightened one who was not frightened at the end but what she hadn't seen was the other grow old and take a bad step on a ridgeline and tumble into a ravine where it broke its hip and starved to death over several days. By that time, Oxlus itself had been aware of the beast's death. If there had been any sentimental tug, considering the old monster had played host to a crucial transition in the life of that planet, Oxalus had not made any attempt to save it. It had begun to understand death, the role death played, and that sometimes death hurt and could not be staved off. Sometimes the living died in a panic, sometimes in serenity, sometimes in aching drudgery, but the living always died. And in general, death came sooner for the small than it did for the large, and the relative nature of these things were becoming all the more significant as the thing that was oxalis just kept growing, until everything on the planet was, in a very real sense, an extension of itself. Everything, life and all the things that interacted with life, would become a compartment of its sentience that it could access at will. Consequently, its perspective and priorities had gone through several shifts, and by the time that first host had passed, individual deaths were a distant echo in all the data it was managing in any given second. One aspect of death that Oxalus had experienced a kind of stumbling transition with, however, was extinction. There had been a time when Oxalus As it began to bring more and more of the planet's natural processes under its control, as it became the planet, there had been a time when it had attempted to stop the process of extinctions. This had almost killed everyone and everything. It might even have killed Oxalus itself. Oxalus was not prone to thinking in terms of ages or epochs, but It could remember the distinct and discrete moments of its existence and, when necessary, bring them to the center of its consciousness. If it had to put language to that time in its history, the time when it had tried to save everything and nearly destroyed it all, it might have called it the time of too much. It had reached a point where it was steering every living thing around every other living thing trying to make room for everyone, for every insect and every great predator and every roving genus of prey animal. Every time the ground had started to change and shift from under a species, when the environment around them began to move away from being able to sustain it, oxalus would try to stem that tide and find a way to preserve some piece of that habitat. Then, it would spend time trying to head off the consequences of that interference and trying to mitigate the effects those consequences were having on every neighboring species of plant and animal. And all the while, everyone was having babies. Every population that Oxalus herded back from the brink just kept making more of itself and needing more room and more resources that the planet was also trying to dole out to every other living thing, each one having demands and needs of its own. The surface of the planet, the air, the seas, the ground itself were overrun, teeming, seething crawling. It was unsustainable, and eventually, Oxalus began to fail. What had driven this attempt in the first place? Was it sentiment? Or is sentiment just the word sentient beings use for the natural urge all life has to maintain a status quo at all costs? If such minute self-analysis had ever been a part of the planet's conscious life, It was lost to ages and catastrophes in the layers of centuries that bled into millennia. And in the end, it would not matter. Once the domino fell, the cascade happened with amazing speed. The mass extinction took less than a century. Too much rainfall had shifted away from a spot that dustbowled, and when its plant life had died, it had proven to be a fatal blow to an insect population that was crucial to the reproductive cycle of plants in a neighboring region, and the only insect that could possibly do the same thing those insects had done was almost the whole planet away, and the attempts to move them set off an imbalance among other insects and higher fauna in the forced migration's path, and then the disruption just started to ripple out uncontrollably. Oxalis had chased all the fraying threads, but Oxalis was life. As the life that hosted it died, so did pieces of itself, and as that happened, its control began to slacken. Pretty soon, it found itself dissolute and weakened, a thing that drifted in thin shards, hanging on to the meager surviving populations of scraggly desert plants and tiny hard-to-kill animals on a planet that was teetering on the brink of death. It took nearly 11 million revolutions around the sun to come back from that. 11 million years of near silence after what had been an age of such noise and tumult. There were times in that long age of desert when Oxlis itself had gone essentially dormant, sleeping for millennia at a time. But as its nascent consciousness slept, the planet churned, and eventually there were volcanoes and ash and greenhouse effects and rain and plants and soil that had finally, after so much time, turned all of that death into the stuff of life again. Oxalis drifted back to living, to consciousness, and eventually to coalescence. It was back in business for about a million years, and then nearly all the life on the planet was wiped out by a massive solar flare that roasted the place. Several million years to come back from that, and then, once again, but a little more quietly and a little more cautiously this time, back in business. Since that time, Oxalus had evolved, growing and learning and mastering itself. The consciousness of the planet had learned that while it was everywhere and in every small thing, it was not efficient, nor was it necessarily sane, to be in a state of constant global awareness. So now, the planet's self, its discrete awareness, drifted through a variety of states, taking up and abandoning levels of direct interference, but allowing the natural processes of its biome to continue apace so long as nothing got too out of whack. It was attuned to the vibrations and processes the way a spider is aware of vibrations on its web. It had learned when something felt like it needed its attention, and it could assume global animation at will, and with speed. It had never gotten complacent, and many would-be invaders had learned that the hard way. It was quick, to act, but it had a tendency in recent centuries to gaze out through the eyes of night things. It had taken to watching the stars with a billion pairs of eyes of every shape and configuration. It knew every color and form of every distant radiant thing whose light had reached it. Did it wonder? Did it long? Did it search? If it did, it was not in any way that Maxine or the people of the Contiki would ever have previously imagined or understood. But that was not the same thing as saying that it didn't. Was that why it had coalesced in the way that it had at just this moment? Something it hadn't done in... Well had it ever quite done this? Perhaps not. All of this to say, that while the fate of those two beasts from so long ago, and the offspring of the one that had lived long enough to mate, were written somewhere deep in the many, many strata that made up the near infinite memory of Oxylus, a record of lives that had come and gone, risen and fallen by the countless trillions and quadrillions While that was all in there somewhere, the consciousness that traversed those memories and experiences and cellular wisdom like a scaffolding had not kept any sort of deliberate accounting. So it could not be said that Oxalus knew in any conscious way that the beast most recently known as Angry Maxine, that a descendant of his was still roaming its surface. In a monument to the instinct to persevere, the old bruiser's seed had survived many millions of years, a few mass extinctions, shifting climate phases, and any number of other near-misses. His line had branched several times, and there had been evolutions and changes that would have made almost any descendant wildly unrecognizable to him, or even remotely similar. At this point, all but one of the tributaries his DNA had traveled down had long since dried up, wiped out in the mass extinctions, species extinctions, or some had just wandered to an anonymous halt, final descendants dying on forest floors with no fanfare whatsoever. And in any kind of real or quantifiable sense, anything you could identify as his actual genetic information had been subsumed in the rising tide of incoming DNA in probably less than a thousand years. So, while it was more of a symbolic distinction than it was consequential, still, at various points, Oxalis had teemed with the scarred old monster's offspring. But, no longer. Now, there was just one left. One creature that, If you walked back down his maternal line, mother to mother to mother to mother, in 120 million years or so, you would reach the creature that a certain 15-year-old girl thought of as Angry Maxine. Along the way, there had been many changes. There were times when resources had been scarce, and the grandmothers of that time had been leaner, lighter, and used to living apart from others of their kind. There had been times a million years here, a million years there, when oxalus was covered in dense tree cover for such vast stretches that the small and agile ancestors had been favored. And there had been times when savanna had dominated, and long strides and lighter coloration had been all the rage. The traits that had survived all the many centuries were... The armor, though never quite as thick as it had been in the angry Maxine days, the dense skull plate, and the long, sharp claws. Those lethal daggers had been useful in every iteration. Also, the combative nature. One thing that was true of every generation was that they were slow to back down from a good brawl. The fact that they had survived so long meant they were also good at it. What was visibly different from this last descendant and its many times great-grandfather was, first and foremost, height. Grandson was much taller than Grandpa, about two meters. His head and neck held higher on a broad rack of shoulders and with greater mobility. Grandpa had been a hunched little knot of muscle. Grandson was more rangy, with longer forelimbs. Grandpa had been an unrelenting shuffler. Grandson moved with simian grace and precision. Both were omnivores, but while Grandpa had a mostly plant-based diet mixed with the occasional nest of grubs or the meat of a felled challenger, grandson chased down medium-sized prey, small deer-like creatures or rodents, or, tending to live on the edge of forests, it would venture back into the trees of its ancestors to pick off arboreal creatures. And if none of that was around, it would supplement its diet with berries and fruit. And finally, while grandpa's armor had been heavy overlapping plates that covered the vast majority of its body, grandson's armor was light and as much offensive as defensive. All in all, if Sumner and Laurent had encountered Grandpa, it would have freaked them out, and they likely would have come away scratched and bruised, but they also would have almost certainly come out on top. Grandson was not going to be as easy. When Oxlus had picked Grandson as its latest champion, it had nothing to do with his obscure lineage. It had to do with proximity. Grandson had wandered to the furthest edge of his territory, which brought it closer than any other large predator to where Sumner and Laurent found themselves quickly approaching the crystal cave where Oxlus was having a very private communion with Maxine, a privacy it desired to protect. So, the part of its consciousness that had been tasked with locating a doorman had made contact with a piece of itself there was an inseparable part of grandson and started issuing commands. One thing grandson and grandpa had in common was that they were not big on intellect. So this came as a series of dim urges to go in a particular direction, northeast in fact, and to kill whatever he found there. So suddenly grandson stopped his huffy searching for food or sex or a sunny place to take a nap looked toward the forest off to his left, and with grim determination that it neither understood nor questioned, bolted off with lethal speed. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.